The title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And I'm beginning the talk with a teaching from the Buddha, a short teaching from the Buddha that I offered uh, during my part of the opening talk last evening. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. The teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. So this evening we'll consider an important, uh, one of the most important, or one very important of those of these teachings and practices that. Uh, are part of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma Vihara, which uh, is a Pali word, or two Pali words, and they translate as divine abiding. The divine abidings, there are four of them, and we're going to focus this evening on the radiant warmth and openness of metta, this unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of an open-hearted connection, an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with clinging, not fraught with any attachment, and not even necessarily with a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind, of heart, it arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layers of conditioning that shuts us off to others. And it's also really important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and with kindness. So, We'll begin with an old story, a story that probably took place, and probably did take place, actually, about 2,600 years ago. It's said that the Buddha first uh, taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular 
and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. A forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build the 500 monks huts, each of them, for their stay during this rains retreat. And these strong supporters were also happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their whole practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began practicing insight meditation, vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas, devas are, uh, in the in the Buddhist uh, uh, understanding, devas are beings that have been dwelling because of their practice in beautiful states, sometimes for many, 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 many years. But they're still not fully awake, still not fully enlightened. So these beautiful states are still temporary. So it's said that in this forest, the unseen beings, the forest-dwelling devas, who live there, they became quite fearful of the monks and they felt quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling devas um, began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights. And they also began to emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would uh, make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks did become quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, which broke their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. And some of them even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the degree of fear that they were feeling. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale to the Buddha. And the Buddha responded this way. He said, My beloved monks, go back to that same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest. Again, saying it was just impossible to practice there. And then the Buddha's response was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice, to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many, many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I'll give you a true weapon of protection. And it said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teachings and the metta practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks, of course, didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to that same forest. And for a while, 
they continued experiencing uh, some feelings of fear and some anxiety. While at the same time, they really diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon enough, there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas, the forest-dwelling devas, had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome, even a sense of reverence, began to be the devas' experience, along with a sense of feeling very connected, like with family. And the inclination arose for them to provide an environment of safety, to really protect the monks from the particular dangers, real dangers, uh, that they knew about, such as tigers and poisonous snakes uh, that might be lurking in the forest. So they decided to really um, offer an environment of safety so that the monks could practice their meditation safely and peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that all 500 monks at some point then began practicing samatha and vipassana, concentration and insight, again, as they had been when they first went there, but this time with metta as their foundation. And it's said because they were able to practice their meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all, every single one of them, became arahants, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, of a heart, protected through the energy of metta, this this quality, this capacity to really stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice, the energetic experience of metta (coughs) is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself as we've begun exploring today another particular person, as we'll go on with, maybe a group of beings wishing for oneself and wishing for others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. 
in the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, they begin to pale, begin to pale a bit. They're, of course, very important on one level, but within this incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta is like the sunshine, the sunshine, that warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving-kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does this capacity to connect to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness. Where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. (coughs) And in fact, Living beings literally can't survive for very long without some degree of care and kindness being given to them. As Winnie suggested to us this afternoon, that we recall some personal experience of human kindness being given to us. Every one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So an example, a personal example, a very simple, very mundane, ordinary experience. The day before this retreat began, and I have to say this experience happens to me quite often, 
happened the day before this retreat began. I walked into the post office to pick up my mail. And someone opened the door for me and looked right at me. I didn't know who this person was. I'd never seen them before. We actually looked right at each other, face to face, eye to eye. And we smiled, very warm smile between us. And I, I thanked her, and I felt uh, quite, a, quite a connection, quite a warm connection going on, just for those few seconds between us. So just that. That's unconditional kindness, being offered freely, metta, in a very simple way. And each one of us, of course, have experienced kindness, unconditional kindness, with people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a more overt and stronger energy. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness of that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a a transmission We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive And the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving-kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice. It's a very, very natural choice that others make, that we make. And it has an effect. It has an effect on us, and it has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable, immeasurable compa- capacities of the heart spring from, the other three divine abidings. Compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative joy or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upeka in Pali. It's also the capacity of heart, of mind, that allows the whole breadth 
of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities really being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy, this very powerful energy that moves through us, within us, and from us. So what is it? In the Buddhist text, it's often spoke of as non-ill will, the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however they're manifesting, moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing of ourself in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, and though we've just had one full day, maybe this has happened to some of you. Maybe you've experienced this. Thinking that the person next to you, or maybe the person on the other side of the room, is so much better at their practice than I am. Maybe the comparing mind says, 
that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. That can happen too. There's a felt judgment with these comparing uh, thoughts. They're better than me. I'm no good. We all know what that feels like. Or, I'm great. I'm really great. No sleepiness. No movement. And then the mind goes, just look at that person over there. Nodding. Restless. Moving around. And we could go on with a few more that may have passed through some of your mind even today. Obviously, this isn't metta. We're creating a separation. Me, other. The heart, the mind is actually contracted. And it's uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this, too, is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta. And also to offer the other person in the equation, metta. Maybe we even tried that today. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to in either a positive or in a critical way as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind that's filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those that we're close to in our life, those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us. A heart, a mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect to and to care for any being, all beings. In some words from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta, or excuse me, not Nisargadatta, Krishnamurti, from his meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. 
It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence, said Krishnamurti. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, it's non-judgmental. Metta really has no interest in comparing or fixing. It just allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being and patience and acceptance. Consequently, metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through our mind, our heart, and our body begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked another great uh, Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught uh, through dialogue with his students. So in one of his dialogues, one of his students asked him, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and really quite important to me when I first discovered it, or began to discover it, is that metta doesn't really necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, We're able to connect with beings beneath that with which we might not agree. Or connect with beings who act in ways that we might not like, or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving at the same time. 
There aren't any favorites with metta. No favoring one over another. So, consequently, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy, as I already mentioned. It brings things together. It's really goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so I think from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment now, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, would have blown apart, broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up to and including this very moment when there's been more or less meta-manifesting in the world, more peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when this world has been or is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, really so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger said, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. And then she goes on to say, there's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it quite perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus of our thoughts, words, and actions, if this is what our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, ever know. I'd like now to spend just a few moments uh, exploring some of the expectations that we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know something that we've never experienced. 
or to look for something that maybe we have experienced, but that we didn't label or as unconditional loving kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. And most certainly, sometimes, metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught. We can actually get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental at all. Nor is it romantic at all. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger, in any given moment, is the heart, the mind, of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it might not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's really a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourselves and in relationship to others, to connect directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. So we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. And I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are really very essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings. Uh, This particular collection is called the Anguttara Nikaya. And this is a story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this quite clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And this story takes place uh, just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. Uh, The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And so this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One, as the Buddha is very often called in these... uh, in these collections of his teachings. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati 
in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindika's monastery. At that time, Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. The Buddha Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat and bowed to the Buddha and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Well, right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then two of the, others, two of the other Buddha's chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. A bhikkhu is a a term of respect for uh, a monk. And Rahula, Bhikkhu Rahula, was the Buddha's son. So Sariputta (coughs) says, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I learned from it also. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, milk, fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it's not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. 
Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, and yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over all things, clean and unclean, and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with the heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving-kindness and mindfulness, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robes over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I, was, when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. 
But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon. As I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed to each other three times and reconciled. Metta is really one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is naturally, intuitively loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took up uh, one of the pieces from me and put it in my mouth with a great, huge smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago now I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family, so he never attended school and he never learned how to read until, at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to share a little bit of this book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Uh, Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So this is the conversation, Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. 
You figured that out. Yes, it's nice, nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them. But they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for somebody's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts, said George. The cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart, a mind that's really steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue on a little bit with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, or bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65 years old, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking now. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf that was out of, above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in in a quiet place to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there on the shelf for me. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room. But back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough 
to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell that she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways that you react to it. That's quite a statement from someone like George. Powerful. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And as I've said, and as I think you probably have a taste of, it's not so easy at times, but it's really very well worth it. There's really a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence and strength and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman 
named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. And the only after-school activities that she let them take part in were structured and chaperoned. Unsupervised wanderings and then later on cruising around in cars were completely out. So Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol belonging to the very small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and a coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's advocacy, public advocacy on this issue, wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Ross said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she'd heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And so she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio with her mother and her sisters getting very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layup shots up against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations or Indian uh, communities treat their Indian neighbors decently and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. 
when Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted and their fans won't feel welcome. And the host gym will be dense with hostility and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams sometimes got harassed was the high school gymnasium in Leeds, South Dakota. In the fall of the late 1980s, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leeds to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. In getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pre-game warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line and then take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go back to their bench at courtside. And then after that, the home team would come out and do the same thing, and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up uh, for their entry with more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, senior Donnie DeCorey, who was one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading to the locker room, from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some of the fans... were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. And she unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She'd competed in many powwows as a little girl, and the dance that she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, 
swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead, the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball right through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. And I agree. That was Sue Ann's lion's roar. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice sometimes come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation and do what seems to come naturally. And then, after the fact, realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, is the true result. At the time, What you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks you how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done so easily. But it is a big deal. Because the natural expression of these qualities really changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. I 
I'm closing the talk now with a part of a poem by Mary Oliver. The poem is titled To Begin With the Sweet Grass. This is an excerpt from that poem. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. And since then I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. There'll be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. At the end of our Dharma talk evening, we will uh, chant together uh, the sharing of blessings. It's on the other side of the Metta chant sheet. some out on the table. I was uh, uh, telling Winnie earlier today that um, no matter what uh, Dharma talk is given, this sharing of blessings chant always fits. It's amazing. 
Uh, and just to say that this uh, particular chant was translated from Pali uh, by the um, Buddhist monks in England at the Amaravati Monastery, translated from Pali to English. Some of you know this, and if you do know it, please chant it wholeheartedly with vigor. <laughs> So we can support those that are learning it, and you'll you'll catch on quickly. Just join in as you as you can. <clears throat> Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the lord of death may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life may they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.